Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Uh, this morning, we're uh, continuing in our uh, study of First Peter. We uh, jumped into First Peter last week. And we are uh, continuing on, and as, uh, as I study and as prepare for these messages and as we read this book together and think about what Peter is talking about to those first century believers and then inevitably to us, uh, I'm uh, profoundly reminded of the similarities between the situation of First Peter and the readers and us and, and, and excited about what we'll learn from this book and how instructive it will be to us as we live in our day in our culture. Uh, one of the present day fascinations, the preoccupations of us as people is that we're always trying to understand ourselves, determine what makes us tick, and how we know that we are valuable. In some real ways, we are facing new challenges to this goal. Uh, There was a a Pew Research project that studied people uh, and their expectations about life. And one finding said that people encounter death more regularly today than in times past. Someone knows someone or has a family member with a terminal illness more regularly now than generations past. This is due to population growth. This is due to people in cities more. And it also is due to communication. Communication is widespread and Every difficulty, every challenge is communicated widely. And so they're noticing a growing number of people connected with people who are having serious health issues. Another finding because of this as a result is that people ages 18 to 45 are optimistic about the future. They look forward to better days in the future. Whereas people who get past 45, 45 to 65, it's not as optimistic. Uh, They wonder about their better days. And they're aware of this constant uh, kind of deterioration or uh, that the inevitability of death is coming, that it's more prevalent and, and it's, it's more in our awareness because of these communications. When older people are asked about their best days, it's not uncommon to find that it is some day in the past. If you were to think about your best day, how would you answer the question of your best day? Is your best day still coming? Is your best day in the past? Do you anticipate your best day very soon? Would you say that your best day is related to some accomplishment, some situation in this life? Some might put the focus on a job or the hope of a 
new event, maybe retirement, maybe a purchase of a home, a job that they've been working on, maybe launching your kids into their own path of life, Uh, maybe into marriage or into a career, and that's a great day. How many of us would think of the culmination of salvation? How many of us would put that right up at the top? Seeing Jesus entering into the riches of life under his rule, completely in his kingdom where love and fulfillment and worship and service to God will be unhindered and experienced in full force. I would say that it is natural to think of this as you get older. So in some sense, for believers, our best day is coming into clearer focus. Or I would say it's naturally, uh, it's natural for us to think of that when we face death, the loss of a loved one. Peter, in our text, speaks today about the reality of this promise as something we should, that should shape and govern our lives. The understanding about who we are and where we are planted right now should flow out of who we are. We looked at this a bit last week in the opening part of Peter, realizing we're chosen exiles, who we are. We're, we're God's people. And our destiny, where we're going, should influence how we live, what we value, how we encounter the world around us, and what we're trying to do in the world. We will, as believers, ultimately live in this world as exiles. One of my concerns is that Peter, Peter certainly is raising this, is that we know about this promise, this future kingdom of Christ. But in some sense, we don't tap into the feeling and the longing for it. We know it as kind of a theoretical thing, but maybe it hasn't sunken in. It hasn't really touched us in the deepest places. And I think in some ways we're not homesick as we should be. When we think about being homesick, or when I think about being homesick, I certainly do remember when I was 12 or 14, and uh, maybe 12, 10 or 12, and my grandparents would come and visit, and they would come only once a year, or maybe once every two years, and they'd stay a week. And sometimes we would go down and visit them, but we only saw my grandparents once a year for a week or two, and maybe once every two years. And I remember them coming and anticipating them coming. And, and we would do all the things, go to the zoo and, and go uh, uh, out to eat. And we would go to the park. We'd do all things when they're there. It was a great time. And then it would come time for them to leave. And I remember that, that just that homesick feeling of, family relationships that were supposed to be regular, they weren't. And it would take me, uh, you know, a week or two to get over that. And I would long for it to my grandparents to come back and let's, let's live, stay together. Or I remember when I went to college and, and I moved from Wisconsin to Texas. 
in kind of a fell swoop. And I went to a foreign country, and I was indeed in exile. And, uh, and that was a hard thing. I, I remember the feeling of longing for something, for, to return home, to, to be where I belonged, to, know, to live where people knew me, and I was a part of everything. Here I was a foreigner. I know that we've all had those kinds of experiences. You can remember times in your life when you felt that kind of homesickness, that loneliness, that disconnect. Well, it is that kind of experience that Peter is writing into when he's writing in First, first Peter in his first century to this Gentile area. He calls them chosen and exiles scattered. That means they're not in their home. They're not in their ultimate destination. They're in a foreign land. They're in a strange place. And they know that they truly belong somewhere else. But this is, this really taps into a whole long story of the people of God in the Old Testament. Because there is, they're in exile many times. They're God's chosen people, and God has a plan and purposes, and is working in their lives, and calling them, and, and communicating with them, and directing them, and caring for them. But it's happening an awful lot, not in their own land, in their own place, but they're exiles, and they're waiting for the place that God will finally bring them at the end. And in the New Testament, that picks up into a spiritual sense in which we're all exiles as God's people. We're all strangers in a foreign land, and we're longing for and waiting for the culmination of the kingdom of Christ, our real home. And that's the context of this this book. And therefore, as Peter speaks of this metaphor of being chosen and exiles scattered, it shows that there is a homesickness that should be and is and will be a part of our existence. My concern, I guess, is that we become comfortable being away from home and forget who we are and where we're going. And we began to just kind of blend in with the culture around us. But our call is to realize who we are, where our ultimate destiny lies, and how as believers, as God's people in a foreign land, how we show forth the reality and the truth of God's promised land that we belong to, that we're anticipating, how we show forth the truth of that to the world and the culture in which we live. You can bet the first century people and the people of God in the Old Testament all struggled with keeping hope in their true home as they struggled with living in their current culture. In a way that showed allegiance to God. And this kind of struggle, this kind of call, is what we face every day as well. And so Peter's message is so 
profound and needed for us. It speaks right to where we live today. We need to hear that this salvation that we receive in Christ still fills us with joy for the journey. It can fill us with perseverance to work with kingdom values for God's glory in this culture. And it can give us confidence in our future best day. Yes, we are exiles. We are sojourners. But we are destined for so much more. And Peter reminds us of these things. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're only doing 3 through 5. And really this section, chapter 1, verse 3 through 12, is Peter's opening thanksgiving. But he kind of throws a lot that he's thankful for. And so we're dividing it up and taking three messages to go through this thanksgiving. Verse 3 through 5, it's, it's precious to camp on and to think about. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As we hear these, verse, these words, there are four things that I want to quickly draw our attention to. First, notice that first sentence, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's opening this letter with praise and adoration. And it, and it might appear to us to be just a normal expression of praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, I kind of put those two words together. They're kind of connected in the Hebrew Bible as kind of thanksgiving as part of praise. So praise and thanksgiving to God. And I think he's saying praise and thanksgiving to God for his overflowing love and grace that we receive in Christ Jesus. But first I want us to think about this a little bit. That word praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that might seem like something we would just fly over, but here's a relationship being highlighted. God our Father, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something significant about the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. It's interesting that this word Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, in this sense, in the Old Testament, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jehovah, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord creator of the earth. The word Lord in the Old Testament is always paired with God the Father. But praise to the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this this reminds us of something uh, that I want to take us into in this in this in this book that I neglected to get into last week because I was running out of time, and so I want to take us back a little bit. Uh, part of last week's sermon. Uh, look at verse two. It's something that I had to skip over. But it's so important, and it's one of the biggest revelations in my Christian life that I would like to highlight for all of us. Verse 2. Verse 1 says, God's elect exiles, which we're noticing. And then he says, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. There is a Trinitarian recognition in this passage. It is fundamental to Peter's understanding of what God is doing in the work of salvation. And I think most of the time we're not so clear on this Trinitarian significance. Athanasius early in the church around 300s said that if we don't understand the Trinity, he doubts whether we're really Christians. I think in the 1800s, there was a separation and kind of a, 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 a criticism towards the Trinity that has caused the church to step away from its understanding of the Trinity. And, and, and that's part of the reason I've been kind of weak on the Trinity. And I confess that I've been weak on the Trinity. But isn't it fascinating that Peter here speaks about the Trinity? God the Father and his foreknowledge, the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood. That it is fundamental to the outworking of the good news of the gospel. And it is fundamental to who we are as believers and I think we'll make that case as we look further but what exactly should we think about the Trinity oftentimes I think whenever we see Trinitarian language the God the Father God the Son God the Holy, we always think yeah there's three persons and and they're one and uh, you know we use the egg illustration a yolk the white and the shell or the water you know can be uh, liquid it can be steam it can be ice you know we're just we're caught up in the mechanics of it sometimes but i want to encourage you to think about the trinity in a relationship way and always think about the trinity first in a relationship way and so when Peter's thinking about the great unfolding of salvation, that we are chosen but we're exiles, and it's because God the Father foreknew. God the Father, as one person in the Trinity, organized, dreamed, thought about, but in conjunction with the Son and in conjunction with the Spirit. And what is it about the Godhead, the Trinity, that's so important? It's that they, as a makeup of who God is, are a overflowing, overflowing expression of love. Because God the Father loves the Son. And the Son honors and loves the Father. 
And God the Spirit loves the Father and loves the Son. And there is this relationship of love and grace and goodness. And in that relationship, God is fully sufficient. He needs nothing from anyone. And in matter of fact, He is overflowing. So this is one of the places where we have a distinction, let's say, from more monotheistic beliefs like Islam. Islam believes in a singular God with no real explanation or definition. And if you think about Islam, you talk to someone who's a Muslim, they'll say, well, if I come to meet God on that day of judgment, I just hope his graciousness, his mercy outweighs his wrath at that time. Because there's nothing inherent in God to explain why he would be fundamentally loving. But it is the basis of the Christian faith that God is fundamentally loving. And it overflows and springs out of our understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one. They love each other. They honor each other. They pour into one another. They work in concert with one another, in cooperation with one another. And in their personhood, they overflow with love. Just just think back in the scriptures when you think about God the Father giving honor to his son. When he's at his baptism and he speaks out of the heavens, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It is God honoring and looking at the work of the son and taking joy and pleasure. The most important thing that has ever happened on this planet, according to God the Father, is the sacrifice of his beloved son. Because he knows that his beloved son did that because he loves the father. And the father honors the son and pours out his attention and his affection and gives all authority and glory to the son because the father loves the son. And the spirit comes and he's working in concert. He loves the father. And he even is is called kind of, Uh, We could understand it as being the shyness of the Spirit. The Spirit is not on the front line. He's not grabbing attention. What is He doing? He's shining on the sun. He's magnifying the sun. He loves the sun. And the work of this great God is an overflowing love. That benefits us. It's how God can pour out his love on a wicked world that has walked away from him. If he was a singular God, why would he extend himself? Except as God the Trinity. He loves. They love each other. They are fully sufficient in their relationship. And it overflows. And that relationship together invites God's creation into that relationship. So Peter really does camp a bit on the Trinity here at the beginning of 1 Peter. And it is what causes him to say, praise be to God. Thanks 
be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of the abundance of the love that they share. That, that's how we can say that God is love. Because he expresses and lives in eternal, powerful love for one another in the Trinity. And it overflows onto us. And we're invited into that. So indeed, praise and thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second we see, and I'll have to move along because that was kind of a big revelation to me. I hope that as we read about the Trinity in the Scriptures and we see the Father and the Son that we begin to think about how much the Father loves the Son. How much the Spirit loves the Son. How much they long as one great God to bring us into the experience of that love. And that love extends to us, second, because of God's mercy and new birth and living hope. In his great mercy, he gave to us a new birth. And that word new birth is the exact same <coughs> excuse me, is the exact same word used in John chapter three when Jesus has a discussion with Nicodemus, and it's new birth. It's new birth that happens to us in the midst of this life, even though we've already had physical birth. We have spiritual new birth. We're brought into existence in the spiritual realm, in the realm of God's love and grace. And it's because of God's mercy to us. I love the transition in Romans chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul spends that whole time up to chapter 12 all through chapter 11, explaining the wonder of God's unfolding plan of salvation. And then he says, I beseech you, therefore, King James, sorry, automatic. I beseech you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as living sacrifices. Paul there is looking back at all that God has done in the unfolding and intricacies of salvation, in the promises made, in the coming of Jesus to take upon, uh, to, to teach and to bring healing and to preach about God and who he is and then to take upon himself a death that he did not deserve, to pay the penalty for sin that he did not have, and then to rise again and the, the Spirit to come and bring new life to us. All of that is explained how it happens, what has happened, and, and God's great plan of salvation. And in Romans 12, 1, Paul looks at that whole thing and I says, in view of God's mercy. Realize, believers, that we are believers because God is overflowingly loving to us and merciful to us and that he has given us new birth. He has transformed and changed us. That is who we are in this wicked and perverse world. And it is because we are planted here that the expression of God's love should be seen through us. And this is a living hope. It's a living hope. 
It's not a dead hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's a living hope. And what makes it a living hope? It's not that it's, I know the future, and therefore it's living. But we know that we have a living hope when we are assured of the inevitable outcome. Kind of reminds me of the whole idea of being convinced that tomorrow morning the sun will rise. Now that conviction does not come because I know the future. But it comes rather because of the fact that every morning the sun rises. And from that reasonable expectation of experience, I can be confident that the sun will rise tomorrow. Now, that's not absolutely without fault confident because the end of the world could come tonight before the sun rises. But given the pattern and consistency and regularity, I make a a reasonable hope. A living hope that the sun will rise. Well, when we come to the scriptures and we realize what God has promised and all that he has orchestrated and we see the life of Jesus described to us and the events of Jesus told to us and his death and then his resurrection, we have a living hope that as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will we who believe in him. It is not just wishful thinking. It is not just hope so. It is a living hope built on the truth of Jesus' resurrection himself. And that hope is ours. So, we should stand with confidence And give praise and thanks to God for who he has made us. Because of his mercy, because of new birth, and because of this living hope. Third, we praise and thank God for a sure inheritance. These are all riches that Peter stacks up onto our plate. As gifts from God given to us because... We have found life in Jesus. And it should determine who we are. It should give us a homesickness for that day when we will see Jesus and enter into that everlasting kingdom. But it should also help us to identify with the people of God through the history of the world that have oftentimes been exiles, knowing of God's love for them but their longing for their real home and the call that we have to be a light in the place where we are scattered. So we thank God and praise Him for a sure inheritance. And this certainly takes us back to the picture in the Old Testament of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and the example is of the people marching through the desert leaving Egypt on the way to Canaan in Deuteronomy 15.4, Moses says, Speak to them about the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. There's where we get the idea of inheritance. But what's interesting about Deuteronomy 15.4, in the story, they were not in Canaan yet. 
They were still coming out of Egypt. They were still exiles waiting to receive that inheritance. Though God tells Moses to speak to them about the land that God is giving them to possess as your inheritance. What we learn here is that this inheritance finds its expression in something that we we don't have just yet in actuality, but we have full ownership of. It is a biblical understanding of inheritance. Inheritance in our day is more uh, someone has to die and then you have to go to the lawyer and hear the will and then you get your inheritance. But a scriptural idea of inheritance is what God promised. What God is giving is your possession. For who will stand against God? And as we look at this, this inheritance is called three things. Will never perish. Meaning that it is not subject to decay. Never spoil. Meaning unpolluted by sin. Uncontaminated by nothing. This is an inheritance that will not perish. Will not Decay will not be spoiled or fade. Meaning, unlike earthly wealth, it will never grow dim. It will never shrivel. It will never lose its beauty. These words are all expressions of the eternal character of this inheritance in contrast to earthly possessions. Peter had a difficult time explaining and describing this inheritance. So he had to use language that was negative in contrast to the world. Because it is so great and so profound. They indicate the eternal nature of this inheritance. For which we praise and thank God for the hope of such a sure gift of grace. And it is ours already. It is our inheritance. That is who we are. Fourth and lastly, in verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. What a precious promise that God will keep us He will shield us until that final day. We are like a fort which is garrisoned around to keep us safe from the enemy. And God is standing guard. God will protect us by his power from all the hostile evil forces. And the evil one particularly. At the same time, our faith shields us. So there is a role to play on God's part and on our part. It is as Christians trust in God that we experience the power to uh, the power of his protection. It is as we as we believe and trust in God that we experience the power of his protection. Here is the paradox that we cannot resolve. I think it must 
stay unresolved. It would be going beyond biblical teaching to say that our faith is wholly due to God's power alone, regardless of what we do. And it would be equally a mistake to say that God's power comes into action in our lives only as a result of our faith. Both elements are necessary. But we are not able to say the relationship between both of these. An analogy is helpful. The relationship of a child to its father. The good father, good father's care goes beyond what the child expects and is shown even when they are not showing an attitude of trust but are acting wholly foolishly. The good father's care is still extended. Equally, the children draw courage from knowing that their father is always there. So they venture out on their own even as their father is not acting directly. In the same way, we see a certain lack of precise explanation about the relationship between God's power to hold and protect and to keep and our responsive human faith. They both are key elements. The fact that we cannot define that relationship more closely is no argument for denying the existence of God's power to keep us. Nor is denying the role of faith in this keeping correct either. Praise God for the salvation that is at work in us. That he keeps us, he provides us, he takes care of us while we trust in him. And those work together. We are kept for the day of revelation and this day that encompass this day will encompass all that God longs to give to us. It contains the idea of rescue from danger and healing from illnesses and deliverance from the threat of death and entrance into the state of well-being in God's very presence. This is the last day. This is our inheritance. This is our best day. This is our God's intention for us. This salvation we anticipate should fill our hearts with expectation and real longing and homesickness. It is as if Peter is describing salvation as being like a a new car that's waiting to be released onto the market. And in some way we get to see the new car. We get to sit in it. We get to feel it and anticipate its deliverance. That in some way is what we experience as Christians. The the power of God's word, his presence and his love. We can be uh, overwhelmed with his grace and kindness to us. And we get to experience those things. They're not the full car yet. We're anticipating that. We're longing for that day. We can enjoy test drives in advance. And we can... Help the world around us, the culture around us to see something miraculous about the gospel and the way it's changed us and what we're living for. So, you can imagine the effect that these words had upon Peter's first century readers. 
These first century readers were chosen and elect and dispersed and scattered. And these Christians huddled in small groups on Sundays. Maybe in modern day northern Turkey and elsewhere. But they were spiritually tired. And as we see through the book, as we continue to study this, that there was... There were challenges to their faith and to their livelihood because of their their profession of faith. And they were run down and they were tired. I wonder if we're ever run down and tired. If we think that the world and the culture is shaking underneath us and things aren't the same. We don't know what's going on. We should hear the words of Peter. We're exiles. Our roots, our are not planted here. God's in charge and he knows what he's doing. And he's building his church. And our call is to trust in him. To keep our eye and our heart longing for the day that we will see the fullness of these promises come real to us. And to live on the basis of this. Live for God's glory. His truth. Don't get captivated by the culture around us. Set your heart on what God is doing. And then be agents of grace in this world. That's our call. Because of the promises of God, we have a deep reservoir from which to draw. In grace, love, service. Because our God, is an overflowing God of love and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so good to us. You are gracious. Your word is so powerful and it speaks life to us. And, And I pray that it is life to us today. Your promises change who we are. Our destination is sure. We are walking the path that Jesus walked. And Lord, we are failures and we are flawed and we are sinful. But Lord, your Holy Spirit is there. and You are at work in our hearts. And it's our prayer that we set our hearts on the real destination of life. The wonder of what you have really done in us in making us your people making us new. May we find joy in our service to you as your people in this world, knowing our true home. We are exiles, but we are chosen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.